Well, take your Bible and turn to Joshua 24. This morning, we have two messages left in our series of the book of Joshua. Uh, It's always a delight when we come and we sing together. There's a huge value, uh, at least for me, sitting in the front, hearing the congregation collectively singing hallelujah, praises to the Lord, Uh, having that ring in my ears, knowing that there is this collective sense to which we all gravitate on one day a week and multiple other times with other groups where we're focusing on uh, the word of God. And there there could be no greater illustration than that, than that of Joshua's call to the people at the end of this farewell address where we see the people's response to Joshua's declaration that we talked about last week when he said, but for, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But it's set over against a larger reality, isn't it, when you think about your Christian life? Think back over from the time that you initially were saved and he found you and he rescued you from your own sin. You and I still notice this experience that happens over the course of the Christian life, where over time, we're often tempted to drift in different ways, aren't we? It would, I would love, more than anything else, to be able to make a one-time decision and have it completed and then never have to think about it again because I do whatever I said I was going to do perfectly. Oftentimes, we long for this sense of perspection, but live in a reality that knows that we are going to be faced with trials, we are going to be faced with temptation, and when we do, we will be faced with a life, not necessarily always to say, will you dishonor in the sense that, will you just disown this Christian principles that you once embraced? It is a slow Temptation to drift away from the Lord. Have you felt that? At one point when you were a new believer and you just were ignited with such passion and excitement to be able to get in God's word and all of a sudden it was like over time you could easily find yourself getting to points where you're like, I should probably pick that up. I should probably make a little bit more time. The, the, perhaps the first time that you came to a life of of a body of believers and and witnessed them congregating together for the glory of God, you thought this was the most amazing thing you had ever experienced. Only little by little did you easily drift away, perhaps, and thought, you know what, it maybe, it was really good, but, you know, I'll, I'll just get it whenever I can. See, the Christian walk, Satan never stops tempting the believer to drift away from the things of God. He's going to work hard at trying to get you to move away from the things that God says he values the most. The Christian lifestyle very easily can turn into something of an apathetic reality where all of a sudden we can't remember the last time we picked up our Bible or really desired to be with community or to be convicted genuinely of the Holy Spirit where we're just saying, God, make me closer to you. Decisions often get made more out of comfort and convenience for us in this life over time instead of out of a concern for, for, of, of choosing what we choose before the eyes of a holy God. We live often lifestyles of that comfort and convenience, which are often the very means by which Satan uses to tempt us to move away from God. Oh, it's just one time. Don't feel so, don't beat yourself up about it. But if all of a sudden those sometimes turn into more than sometimes, you end up having habits that are created over a lifetime. Joshua knew this with the people. All of his efforts at the end of his farewell address before he leaves this earth to have one last moments of his life to be able to urge the people to say, do what you do, not because it's convenient, not because it's easy, but because it's what God says is right. 
And it brings up the question that I've, even in studying this, I've asked myself, which I will ask you today, what is it that's going to help us retain this sense of serious disposition to serving the living God with sincere loyalty? What is it that, that one thing that through our week when we're tempted to drift or not pick up our Bible or care less about various Christian principles or what we're watching or what we're doing or if, if we're tempted to bow down to various idols of things that we wrestle with in our lives, what will it be that retains a sense of gravity and seriousness? that all of a sudden helps us run back to the presence of the living God and remember that this is where joy is, this is where happiness is, these are where God's boundaries lie. What will urge us in the deepest parts of our soul to take God seriously for who he is? And all throughout the scripture, there could be one thing that brings a gravity, a heaviness, a seriousness And you know what it is? It's the character and the attributes of the almighty, the living, holy, jealous God of heaven who longs for you and I to be the kind of children that he has rescued us and adopted us into his family. And today, Joshua calls the people, and inside of this response of the people, Joshua recalls this reality of God's attributes to bring a heavy, serious disposition to the choice he was calling them to make. And there could be no greater seriousness than, we, than when, that you and I come to grips right now that we are standing before the eyes of a holy and living God who sees through whatever worship you had this morning, that whatever is going on in your heart, whatever kind of lifestyle you're living, whatever way you're choosing to do this out there and then maybe in a hypocritical way do something else when you're around Christians, we are living, brothers and sisters, before the gaze of the Almighty One. There could be nothing more serious. So when you make a choice to serve God, this cannot be some flippant choice that all of a sudden you say, maybe I'll try that today. This is serious. Joshua is not some old man at the end of his life scolding a bunch of irreverent, illegitimate children. He is an old man who has seen the wonders of the living God who pleads with this people, love him, serve him, be loyal to him. Remember this God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This heightened seriousness was so critical for the people of Israel because they had often wavered up and down. And one moment when when they were forced with plague because someone had done something wrong, it's like, oh, I guess we should be serious. And in the next moment, they tried to correct it. And here's the, here's the real amazing reality is that every time, God sought to bring them back. And he loves them. This morning, as we think about this text together, uh, it is my goal, I think, uh, as we uncover this text, to focus on this reality uh, for us this morning, that the magnific- ma- magnificence of God must magnify the seriousness of our loyalty to him. This is your main idea, and for whatever reason, my clicker is not clicking, so if you click it, you will see it in front of you, uh, for you for up at the sound booth. But think about this, that the magnificence of God must magnify the seriousness of our loyalty. Look at Joshua 24 and follow with me, if you would, uh, in verse number 16, where we begin to see the response of the people. After Joshua declared, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, the people answered and said this, they answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us and our fathers out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did great signs in our midst and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples among the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. 
Now notice Joshua's response to this. And Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and you serve these other foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Now just think about this reality. I mean, here Joshua is like calling them to this climactic point, right? You feel it. It's like here is, they're all gathered at Shechem. And this is no small serious nature because the Ark of the Covenant, it's very likely that they moved the tabernacle to the area of Shechem because this was a serious covenant renewal. Here you have the presence of the tabernacle and the living God, Joshua calling them, telling them, serve the Lord, them saying, you know what, we're going to do it. We will serve the Lord our God. And they're, you know, like, you'd almost expect like, from them to Joshua, Joshua to be like, yes, that's the answer I'm looking for. And then he says, you can't do it. What? I thought that's what you just told us we were supposed to do. Notice the gravity of his response is not to say there was an inability more than there was an unapproachability of the holiness of God. You cannot do this on your own, he would declare to the people. Our God desires this significant dependence on him. One in which Joshua desired for the people never to forget And he says to them, you you can't do this on your own. Why can't you? Why is it that you and I cannot live the Christian life on our own? It's because God is a holy God and he is a jealous God. When you begin to think this morning about the holiness and the majesty of our God, here it is, is the very two attributes that Joshua comes back to, to leave the people at the end of his life with, to say, remember these two things about God. He is holy. He is jealous for you. These two attributes would hear, would hit the ears of those people and create within them, in the presence of the tabernacle of the living God, a sense of urgency, a sense of weightiness, to remember that whatever they would choose at this moment, God would hold them responsible for living. See, this dependence is always what God has desired. He didn't want the people of Israel. You think to yourself, why would Joshua respond like that? It seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? We'll serve the Lord. You're not able. Like, that's the kind of discipleship you'd like to share with somebody right? I'm not worthy. I know you're not. So don't ever expect to be. Well, thank you very much. Joshua desired by using this language to help them create in their mindset a seriousness about what they were just about to commit to the Lord. And he really desired for them to realize, in your own strength, this is not possible. And I would say to you today, believers, that has not changed for us over thousands and thousands of years since the time of the conquest. You and I as believers lie in complete dependence on the holy, living God of heaven to rescue us, to draw us away from our sin. He wanted to give them a sense of a strong dose of divine reality. From God's vantage point, when he looked at the people of Israel and they said, we'll do it. He says, this isn't even possible all by yourself. Which ought to make you aware that when the living God says, you can't come before me. And then he welcomes you to come before me, to to come before him. He's done something so miraculous so that you're even welcomed into the presence of the living God. I don't know about you, but I sinned last week a lot. Had bad attitudes at various different times. Short tones with different people that I love and care about. And yet, we come and we stand. Now, repentant, thank you very much. I went before the Lord. I'm not coming before you in sin. 
but he welcomes us as sinners in the presence of a holy God who we have no reason to be here except that he, by his good graces, would welcome us in in the midst of all the things we wrestle with because of his love. It is this love and holiness of God that Joshua desires to leave the people with. And in, as we talk about these two things this morning, I think they're so incredibly important. Believers, our God is this incredibly holy, separate, distinct, non-sinning, never-touched sin, always apart from every or anything that would be a level of defilement whatsoever. I love this particular definition from one of uh, the systematic theology books by John MacArthur. He says, God's holiness is his inerrant and absolute greatness in which he is perfectly distinct above everything outside himself and is absolutely morally separate from sin. You think about this definition of God being holy and you think about Jesus embarking on a rescue mission and breaking through from this transcendent God to these people who would die in their sin and he, and he allows his son to come and rescue people and yet he was not sinning. He wasn't filled with sin on any sense our God is, this is the greatness of our God, his absolute holiness. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means he's certainly separate from anything, but even before we get there, let's just simply say this, that it's expressing God's uniqueness. God brings up his holiness in this regard because he wants us are in the minds of the people and us today to say, this God we serve is like no one else. He's not like you. He's not like anybody you have ever met. He's so unique. There's no one that can compare to him. There's, there's no relationship that you have that you could honestly go, oh, so God's like, he's so far above us. He's so separate and that means that he is so separate from us that he is pure in his nature and pure in his person. There has been zero, absolutely no defilement of sin whatsoever, which means God cannot be a created individual who is part of the world that is tainted with sin. He cannot be. He has to be outside the very creation in order to be not tainted from the sin that has been cursed from the world that he created because of that very early sin of Adam and Eve. And yet the uniqueness of this God in comparison to all the other ancient Near Eastern gods, he wanted to commune with his people. Believers, he wants a relationship with you. This is not some distant God of theistic evolution that wound up the clock and decided to just let it go in an impersonal fashion where you will never know him. No, this is a God who meets with his people, who, who inspires the very words of the Bible so we can know him. See, all the ancient Near Easterns, God, were just a bunch of men blown big that all the ancient Near Eastern cultures were worried about pacifying or manipulating the various godlike uh, statues that they served in hope that somehow that God, that idol would give some fortune to their life or some betterment to their family. God isn't like that. He actually just starts us out in saying, you're not worthy. Any believer who comes to repentant faith in Jesus Christ comes to a recognition that they are not worthy of the salvation that God has so graciously offered to them through the Son. You and I, we don't deserve it. We will never deserve it. And this holy God, transcendent from all that he has created, breaks through time through the work of his Son. And we know him, and we know the Father through the Son. This is his unique, comparable, this incomparable reality to any other God. This is the reality that Hannah, do you remember this story of Hannah so longing for a child? I mean, she just, her heart was just 
welled up within her with sadness. She saw other people experiencing the joy and she goes before the tabernacle of the almighty, the holy God of heaven, and she begs and she pleads with him. And the priest, Eli, comes out and because of her weeping and all of this kind of uh, thing that was going on that he was visibly seeing, he thought that she was drunk. And yet her heart was just being unfolded before the holiness and majesty of God and saying, Lord, if you do, if you, even if you give me this very thing that I long for, I will just give it back to you because you are worthy and you deserve all of these things. Could you imagine the reality of Hannah's soul when all of a sudden she realized she was pregnant? I mean, you probably saw the pregnant lady running around a tent more than you probably would ever see somebody running around a tent. Filled with a remarkable joy, filled with a sense of awe in the holy God. And then she gets this perspective. She recognizes she's going to wean this child. And then she's taking him back. I mean, if it wasn't hard enough to think, God, I want, to, I want this child. And now you finally give him to me. And now you think she'd hold on to him too tightly. And yet she goes, I'm going to take him back to the temple. And Lord, he is yours. And he was weaned at a young age And she comes back to the temple with Eli and she drops him off. Could you imagine the hug that she gave to him when she left the temple that day? And then it's recorded in 1 Samuel 2, her praise, she says this, there is none holy like you, Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah's holy disposition that in God's gracious hand of good gifts that she would come and she wouldn't just weep out of, of not being able to, 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 to raise her child, but knowing that her child was now going to be used for God's holy purposes alone. She magnified the Lord and said, of all the gods that all these other people serve, there is none like this God who answers prayers, who communes in the quietness of her own soul as she pleads before God, please let me have this. And he answers, Christians, this holy, personal God loves when you come before the throne of grace, calling out to him so that you could use your life for the glory of God wherever it will be, wherever you will find yourself. He wants to answer prayers You don't have this picture of God, I hope, like Santa Claus and you got the naughty and nice list and that you just never get good things. Believers get good things even at times when they're naughty and we don't deserve it. I still don't get it. Why would he do that? Because he wants to teach me something about himself that I live a life that is completely unworthy of the majesty and holiness of God. And in the midst of his majesty, he is willing to receive my worship. He's He's willing to receive the praise. He is separate from all things. But it just doesn't stop there when it comes to his holiness He's not just pure in his person. He is pure, therefore, in all of his activity. You could never say God is doing unholy kinds of things. He has a purity in a sense where he, there is no one like God. That's why it, it records in the Bible that he is holy. He doesn't just act holy. He acts holy because he is holy. He cannot do anything else. The purity of his person demands that the purity of his activity is consistent with who he is. Most often theologians, many of them would describe his holiness, this particular attribute of God, to be the one attribute from which all of the other attributes tend to proceed out of. So that in a sense, when you think about God's holiness, you think about it in his activity You think about it in the way that Job 34 verse 10 says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it 
from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Or at James chapter 1, verse 13, when it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Holiness means that God's ethical system is so pure from any sense of defilements that he always does what is consistent with his holiness. Which means that out of that holiness is where we get the idea of righteousness in theology. What does it mean to be righteous then, you might ask? It means to be holy. Why is it then in 1 Corinthians 6 that he says of the believer, you are now the temple of the living God. A place where God can look upon and he sees righteousness. It's because the gift of the Son by the graces of God, when you repent and he gives you the grace of God, that precious gift is his holy righteousness that covers your unworthy life. So when the Father, who should be initiated to wrath, is pacified by the work of the Son, because of his righteousness and his bloodshed and his holy sacrifice, because he was always willing to do right when everyone else would do wrong. It's even beyond that. There's a reason why, by the, by the way, why when we pick up the Bible or many Bibles that are in our pew or you go to, a, or go to a hotel and you open that first drawer and you see that one book in there called The Holy Bible. It's not just the Bible. There's a reason why, why God's people always expressed the, the truths of the living God as holy. is because they came out of the activity of a holy being. The inspired word of God that transcends all humanity was willing to allow himself to be known by giving us a holy truth that you can always go back to and be sure that there's no defilement in it whatsoever. There's no distortions of it. See, it's actually holiness, by the way, that provides the basis for God's wrath being against sin. There's a reason in Romans 1 when it says that God's wrath is against all ungodliness. It's because no sinful being can ever be allowed in the presence of a holy God unless something takes place. Oh, I love the Old Testament pictures in all these stories of the holiness of God. Let me just give you a couple. You remember in the Old Testament when you were reading 1 Samuel 5 when all of a sudden, and this was closely connected with the, the incident of, of Eli's two sons who carried the ark of the living God, this holy God who would want to commune with the life of his people and they carried it off into battle and they lost it to the Philistines. And the Philistines thought they were so wise, they thought, this is great, we got their God. And so they bring, them, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the house of Dagon, their God, and they leave it, and then they come back overnight, and Dagon, their statue of their God, is laying full, face down flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And their first reaction was, well, that must have been an accident. Who's tipping over Dagon? So they set him back up, and they come back, and there he is again, face down, in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the living God. God will not share his glory with anyone because of his holiness. The Philistines thought to themselves, after they've been plagued with tumors because the Ark of the Covenant was there, let's set it before and let's give it to another Philistine city. Let's send the Ark of the Covenant away. Well, then the same thing happened. Their Ark of the Covenant consumed the people of the Philistines with, with tumors. And then they said to themselves in 1 Samuel 5, this was all a trick and the Israelites knew it. They gave us and handed over the Ark of the Covenant knowing that if we brought it amongst us, he would destroy us because of, because of what's going on. Let's send it back. So they create a cart and they put it there 
and they send it back. And they say this statement in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, and you can read the story later. They said to themselves, just by chance that this is just some real freak accident that all of a sudden we all ended up with tumors, let's put the ark on a cart and let's send it back. And if it gets to the fork in the road and it turns to Beth Shemesh to go back to the people of Israel, we'll know that it was God, their God that was doing it. But if it turns the other way, we know that it was just some freak accident and we should just not be too overly concerned about that. It was just, whew, let's just say, let's just make sure that doesn't happen again. That cart, and they stood there and watched and they came to the fork in the road and those oxen that were pulling the Ark of the Covenant all of a sudden veers off to Beth Shemesh. You know what it said to them? Don't mess with the holiness and the majesty of God. The people of Beth Shemesh come and 70 people decide that they're gonna take a peek into the Ark of the Covenant of this holy God who he said was untouchable. And all of a sudden it says they opened up the Ark and 70 people were destroyed just by tampering with God's holiness. There's something so serious about this holy God Can I ask you this, when you think about his holiness, does it shape the way you think? Does God's holiness shape the way you lived last week? Does God's holiness shape what you view on TV? Does God's holiness shape where you go during the week and who you're with and how you speak and what you wear and all of these other intricacies of life that become normalcy to us, is there a sense in which the gaze of the almighty, holy God means something so much to you that you're willing to transform everything about yourself for the sake that when he looks and he sees who you are and how you live, that he would say you're pursuing after holiness because he, is, because he alone is holy. That's the call to the Christian. Do you abhor what is evil Romans 12, 9 says, and cling to what is good. See, the result of this holiness on humanity is that God's people must approach God on his terms, not ours. If you're here this morning, and perhaps you're listening to this, and you're thinking, this God is a bit scary. Yes, because... God alone has the right, has the authority, is the righteous judge. He alone has the wisdom to know that you will end up in one of two places, heaven or hell. Those are real places. If you say you're going to come to the holiness and approach the living God on your terms, he will not accept you. But if you come humble, confessing your sin, knowing that salvation can be found in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 4, 12, there is none other name among men whereby we must be saved. He gives you this opportunity, but you must come on his terms. If you come on his terms, you will find grace. You will find love beyond measure. You will find joy in a way that you've never experienced. But you've got to come on his terms. This unapproachable God is holy. We have to pursue this, believers. We must pursue lives of holiness. Joshua calls the people, and I call you this morning as we get closer to one more message and being finished with Joshua. Is your life, would God describe it as holy? Are you living a holy life? And seeking to be holy as he is holy? Are you separating yourself from things of the world, ways the world thinks? The ethical system of the world? It's got to be different. Church, collectively together, will we go on and pursue the holiness of a majestic God in a way that we are not going to just allow sin in our lives and be satisfied with it or, or sin in the lives of our community where all of a sudden uh, we are known by a pure and undefiled worship before God. It is a choice we make personally but it is a choice we make together. 
Because as we think that we could sin and it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt anyone else, sin always reaches further and impacts farther than you ever imagine it to go. Don't hurt your brothers and sisters in Christ by pursuing after an unholy lifestyle before the eyes of a holy God. He will not allow it. But don't allow yourself to think for one minute that this holy, majestic God doesn't want you at the throne of grace. It doesn't matter where you sin and when you've sinned and how much you've sinned. This God will receive a contrite, humble heart in confession. He will forgive your sins every time you can come to him. He loves you. This holy God has a holy love for you that is far beyond our comprehension. Because every time I think about myself, I, I, I think to myself, how do you love me? You shouldn't love me. But you do because your love is a holy, undefiled love that welcomes by grace sinners. But it's not just that. It's not just about his purity of activity and his holiness. It's interesting that this systematic theologian poses this reality. He said, this poses a problem for humans since when they approach him, his holiness explosively collides with their sinfulness. See, when you go before a holy God and you have sin, and if you come before the presence of a holy God on a week-by-week basis, and you think that it's no big deal that I'm sinning, but I'm gonna go worship him, God has a problem with that. You should be spending some time thinking Saturday How have I been living my life? I'm going before a holy God amongst a people who are supposed to be holy. And what will I bring to him? Take it serious. God wants us to deal with sin. Why? Because he's a jealous God. I mean, notice this. He says, you're not able to serve him because he is holy but he is jealous. Well, what does that mean? I love this definition by Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He says, God's God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. See, God's jealousy is always about protection of his own person. Think for a moment, if you would. Imagine you found out that all of a sudden the news came to you and you had been working hard and you really appreciated this person. Perhaps this is a spouse. Perhaps this is a, someone you desired all of a sudden to court towards marriage or someone you were really interested in and perhaps maybe God would do something unique and bring you together and you are living in the light of that joy and thinking this marriage, this is, this is so good or oh, this could be so wonderful or oh, I can just imagine what kind of life. And you, as you start to think about the relationship with that person and you think to yourself, oh, this is gonna be so good. I can't wait till we're married. We're gonna be together. We're gonna pursue God's plan. And all of a sudden, word comes to you from someone who you knew that that person was having all kinds of flirtatious activity with another person at their work place or somebody that they happened to see them in a coffee shop with or somebody that they met at the gym working out. And all of a sudden, for the first time, the joy, the excitement that you once thought you would have turned to an inner rage of jealousy and anger. How dare they do this? How, 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 they, were, they were supposed to be exclusive to me. They, I promised them with a ring. How could they flirt in that kind of way with that person? God's holy jealousy is enacted when his people begin to flirt with the world. And when he hears it and he sees it and he says, what are you doing with this other God? Why are you serving This God, he doesn't love you like I can love you. He doesn't care for you like I can care for you. He wouldn't forgive your sins like I would forgive your sins. 
God's jealousy is an enacting of God's holy love for you. It is his jealousy, believer, that is enacted when all of a sudden, if we were come to a point of choice, and Joshua knew it, that the wrath of a jealous and angry God could consume them. Believer, we should not escape a passage like this in the seriousness and the weightiness of the eyes of an almighty God that he, his jealousy is enacted if we flirt with the world. It is the duty of the believer to love him, to stay away from the world, its ethical system. See, jealousy is about protecting God's honor of himself. That is the Isaiah 48, I will not share my glory with another. Positively, it says in some sense, he is earnestly protective of you. If you were to go and go and begin to start wandering off to other gods of the world, you know what the holiness and holy love of God does for you? He doesn't do this. Fine, I don't care. His holy jealousy is enacted on, upon you to earnestly protect what has been given to you and entrusted you and you were sealed with, which is the Holy Spirit of God. His jealousy is risen out of that holy deposit of the Spirit of God who lives within you and within me. So how dare we ever think that we can flirt with the world and do worldly things and practice worldly things and that we're not doing them and enacting at the same time the holy jealousy of God who longs for exclusivity for you to worship him and him alone. When we recognize this holy disposition, it brings us to our knees. It's the very reason God's holiness and jealousy that often when we even fall prey to sin that we don't want to go back under his holy gaze because we know we shouldn't be there. We are guilty. We are shameful. Why is that? Because he is holy. Never play fast and loose with sin in your life. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for you and I so that we could have this kind of freedom. Believer, even as you interact with other people when you think about jealousy, let me ask you this. Are you jealous for God's holiness to be displayed in the world? Are you jealous on behalf of God with a divine jealousy that exclusivity and, and God to, to him alone belongs glory and honor and power? Do you interact with people in a way that if they're sinning and they're potentially caught up in sin, that there isn't a sense, is there a sense of holy jealousy for the God that they profess to serve? that would ignite within you a desire to say, no, 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 don't go that way. God is jealous for you. He loves you. Don't go and serve this other God. Does it arouse within you that divine jealousy that to God alone belongs worship and praise? It should. As we live together as a body, there should be a real sense of God's holy jealousy amongst the people to not allow each other to go and serve the gods of this world. Well, he says this really challenging statement at the very end of verse 20. He says, or in verse 19, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You read that as I did and you think to yourself, what? What do you mean there's no forgiveness? But remember the conditional aspect of verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, if you persist in choosing to, to not believe in the one true, holy, jealous God, and you persist in your unbelief, there will be no forgiveness in the end. But if you turn from those idols and turn to the living, holy God who's jealous for your worship. Through his son, 
you can find grace and he will not turn you away. That's the conditional reality of this statement. He is holy. He is unapproachable. You can't do this on your own. He won't forgive you if you persist. Because there were people who were believers in Israel and unbelievers who just had the name Israel. You and I have to be serious about that choice. It's critical for our lives. Notice what Joshua says. He says, but Joshua said to the people, you're not able. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Means God's jealousy that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. Look at verse, this ending of this verse. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Sin, the word sin is missing the mark. The word transgressions is willful rebellion against God. If you don't choose to believe in him, both your original sin and your deliberate rebellious choices, you will experience eternity in hell. But it doesn't have to be that way for you. He sent the good graces of his son for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his one and only holy son, to die in our place so that we could be freed and we could be made righteous and so that God would look upon us as a holy people, a people who are now his temple, a people who could come in the midst of his presence. He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve these foreign gods, then he will consume you and he will do harm to you. He's trying to help them realize the seriousness of this choice. Notice the very end of this farewell address. He says these interesting statements, starting in verse 22. He says, Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the tabernacle uh, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua, said to this, and Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Here, archaeology uncovers the Judges 9 temple to the God of Baal, right in the place of Shechem. You can only see the foreshadowing of people doing whatever they wanted to do, what was right in their own mind. That only so few few years would pass, and Baal worship would be reenacted even by God's people. And yet here at this place, you'll notice that in the text it says that it was in front of the sanctuary of the Lord. I want you to notice something. The tabernacle was moved. The tabernacle was brought. Archaeology begins to uncover this, and what do you notice? Archaeology uncovers this massive stone. That Bryant Wood, one of the leading archaeologists, that has uncovered many different things in Jericho, comes to this site and no doubt realizes that this was the same exact site where Joshua would have made this declaration. And they found this giant stone. Most likely, this is the stone that was erected by Joshua and the people across from the Baal worship of Judges 9. So you can understand in reality Joshua saying, you want to serve this? Or do you want to serve him? And he points to this stone and he says, you must serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And years and years later, it is remarkable that Jesus would come to this place in John chapter 4 in the area of Shechem to the well of Jacob and find the woman at the well. One who had had many husbands, who he graciously has a conversation with, and was willing to stop for a moment and say, come and follow me, and offer grace to a person 
who is a half-breed Jew. And how do we know it's this place? Because in, in, in the New Testament, in John 4, what does, he, what does she say to him? Well, it's upon this mountain. Well, which mountain? Mount Gerizim, which stands in the eye shot of Shechem. Our fathers worshiped here. And Jesus said to her, there is coming a day when those who worship will not worship here on Mount Gerizim. They will worship in spirit and in truth. And he said, and that's why he said to her, believer, if you knew who was asking for a drink that he could give you living waters of eternal life, you would kneel. You would abandon the foreign gods of this world, the practices of sin that, embar- that, that overlay your life, and you'll come and follow me. And guess what? She did. This woman was granted the right to be a child of the living, holy God. You and I have that same opportunity. Some of you have taken that. Here, if you are a repentant believer, you are a child of God. And you are holy in his sight. Choose today whom you will serve. Don't flirt with the world and its practices. It will always leave you in a wrong place. But if you choose to serve the Lord, you will always find a deep-seated, abundant acceptance and joy of the living God. Let's pray. Father, you can't but study who you are and when we do not have a sense of gravity of the way that we choose to live our lives. Every attitude, every tone, every disposition, every practice, everything that we have as Christians, it belongs to you. It is for your, it is for you. Lord, the only way that we have this opportunity is because you are so filled with grace and love. Lord, I pray that as we are confronted with these truths about your, who you are and what this means for us, that we would abandon whatever foreign gods or things and worldly practices that would, that would weigh us down and not help us to serve the living God and we would throw them and destroy them and get rid of them out of our lives so that we can be holy and pursue holiness as you, God, are holy. But we cannot do this alone. We need you, Father. Every believer, every individual who professes and has repented, we need your help, Spirit of God, to help cleanse us, to make us aware of sin so that we can live before you in a way that that is pleasing in your sight. Help us to do that, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.